Welcome fellow AA members and welcome Al-Anon and welcome Alateen and welcome all of our friends to this final session of the 40th Anniversary International Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous. To lead us in the serenity prayer, I'd like to call on Reed E. of the host committee. Reed. Good morning. Will you all stand? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God bless. Thank you, Reed. My name is Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. Good morning. It's my great privilege to serve you and the Fellowship of AA at the General Service Office in New York. I'm delighted that on Friday night, some of the speakers picked up the old Texas custom of giving your sobriety date, because it just so happens that day before yesterday, July 4th, was my 14th anniversary in AA. Thank you. <laughs> that will remain as one of the great thrills of my life. It's, it's nice to have a few AA friends in for a cup of coffee to help celebrate your anniversary. <laughs> Uh, my sponsor, who's somewhere out here in this audience, Wes I, uh, when he would introduce me, he used to say, uh, isn't Independence Day a wonderful day to stop drinking? And my reply would always be, any day is a wonderful day to stop drinking. <laughs> Uh, there are some inevitable announcements. Uh, anybody who has lost anything, would you pick it up in the lost and found? They tell me that there's quite a collection of things up there that haven't been picked up. That's in the host committee office, uh, just to the right of that coffee machine up there. Uh, second, uh, you all received questionnaires uh, about the conference the convention, will you please be sure and fill them out, give us your suggestions, your ideas for 1980, and drop them in the slotted boxes that are right at the entrance doors on that end of the hall. Some people have asked me, asked several of us, about the, the total number of people here. I've heard everything from... Uh, <laughs> 25,000 to 250,000. <laughs> it just seems that way. Uh, the, uh, for the record, the, the total paid registrations at this convention were 19,300.
There may be some of you who are not familiar with our tradition of personal anonymity at the public level. If so, we respectfully ask that no AA speaker or member be identified by full name or picture in published or broadcast reports of our meeting. The assurance of anonymity is essential to our efforts to help other alcoholics, and our tradition of anonymity reminds us that AA principles come before personalities. In the AA booklet, Came to Believe, there's a little story that I'd like to share with you. It's about a young woman who came to AA and got sober, and she was at a closed meeting, and when it came her turn, she remarked that she was kind of tired of all of the uh, emphasis on the spiritual side of the AA program. And uh, she just wished that we, somebody would talk about the other aspects of the AA program. So an older member there uh, said, well, dear, uh, I have a lot of time after this meeting is over, and if you'd like, why don't you just stay with me and, and we'll discuss the, the non-spiritual aspects of the AA program. So, she writes, uh, they did uh, have their discussion about the non-spiritual aspects of the AA program, and she says, you know, that was one of the shortest discussions I ever had. <laughs> the point, I guess, is that it tickles me a little when I see this meeting build on your program as a spiritual AA meeting. In my book, all AA meetings are spiritual. <laughs> However, uh, I've got to say that in this beautiful place, did you see those mountains out there this morning? In this beautiful place, and on a glorious morning like this, any meeting has got to be more spiritual than some others. <laughs> now, um, I'd like to um, turn the AA meeting part of this over to the man who is here to lead it. He's, for your information, a past editor of the AA Grapevine, and he's also a past trustee. But perhaps the thing that he's likely to be uh, remembered for, or he would like to be remembered for, I'm sure, is that he is the author of the I Am Responsible Declaration that you're all familiar with. <laughs> and besides that, he's a wonderful guy, Al S. Boy. Thank you, Bob. My name is Al, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. I don't know what to say. Uh, I've been in a fix like this once before out in Long Beach. I was frightened to death then. I sat over there Friday night, and this was an impressive sight from there, but you should see it from here. Uh, you are uh, scary, to say the least. But this is not the most scary incident I can remember in my AA career. Back in about 1949 or 50, 
They called me from the office one day and said, uh, Bill was supposed to go down to Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania and talk about AA to the uh, School of Chaplains. And uh, something has come up, he can't do it. Could you substitute for him? Well, of course I could. And in those days, I was in the newsreel business, uh, you know, the one with the cameraman going panning across like this. Eyes and ears of the world, snap on that one. And that's a business where you work two days a week, so I had some free time. Incidentally, if any of you play trivia, you may find it useful to know that the name of that cameraman was Doug DuPont. Uh, but anyhow, it, it, it's a crazy work week, and I had three or four days free, and therefore was available for this kind of thing. So I said, sure, I can get down to Carlisle Barracks. And we closed the reel about midnight on a Thursday night, and uh, I jumped in the car and drove down to uh, the other side of Harrisburg and got a motel and got a couple hours sleep and uh, put on a clean shirt and went down to this Carlisle Barracks, expecting to see, uh, you know, a handful of new recruits uh, being inducted into the chaplain service. But what they neglected to tell me at the office was that this was the last session of a three-day symposium on alcoholism, and all of the experts had been there. Dr. Jelinek and uh, uh, Selden Bacon and Marty Mann and Ruth Fox and everybody. And they had called in every chaplain of all, the, all branches of the service off every post in the continental United States and all of the reserves. There were about a thousand of them. They were roaming around like like uh, like uh, college students, and they all were heading into this big building. And I was scared to death. This kind of thing is all right for Bill Wilson, but my God! Uh, and then to make it worse, they led me down into this auditorium and said, "You get up there." And they had what I can only describe as a flying pulpit, where you went up, like God knows how many steps, and walked out. And then I looked down on this sea of faces, all of them clergymen, and some words came out of me that uh, I did not generate. I think my higher power put them there. Uh, let me Im let, let, let's imagine the scene. Suppose I were suspended in space up here in something that resembled a a, a, a motorcycle sidecar, and there you sit, expecting me to say something. And this is what it, what came out of my mouth. You know, since I've sobered up, I find myself in the goddamnedest places. <laughs> and that turned out to be the right thing to say because they roared just as you did, and I was comfortable. And this this painful thing became a lot of fun because they started yelling back at me questions and I was yelling back at them and we had a simply wonderful time. Uh, I expect there are a lot of people here who, who, who may not realize how these huge conferences came into being. Prior to 1950, Bill and Dr. Bob and uh, most of the people who, who have guided us so well uh, didn't think we could do this kind of thing that uh, it was too public, that it would undermine the spirit of anonymity and certainly go against our tradition of uh, attraction rather than promotion, and they were afraid to do it. 
But along late in 49 and, and, and the beginning of 1950, Bill and a few others knew that Dr. Bob was dying of cancer. And uh, they kind of began to think it might be a good idea if they could bring as many people as possible to Cleveland so that they could have one last look at Dr. Bach. And perhaps just as important to have Dr. Bach, Bob have one last look at the magnificent thing that he had helped to create. So that's how, that was the motivation for the first international conference, so-called, in Cleveland in 1950. And it was thrown together in a relatively short time, not nearly as well organized as this, and not, of course, not nearly as big. And Dr. Bob was a very sick man, and he was able to participate in only one session and then for just a few minutes. But it was in those five minutes that he made that remarkable talk that all of you know parts of, at least. That's where the phrase, keep it simple, first became lodged in our minds. And he said that day that uh, what we do here may be of interest in laboratories of science, but let's us stay away from that. Because this whole thing boils down to love and service. And please, God, let's not louse it up. Uh, Bill and Hank Grimey asked me to ride down with Dr. Bob back to Akron in the rented limousine uh, just simply to see that he got home safely and delivered into the hands of his doctor. And that one appearance so exhausted this dear man that uh, he simply leaned back in the corner of that back seat and I don't think we said ten words all the way to Akron. And I got him home, and the doctor was waiting for him then, and then I came back, and uh, of course you all know he died about three months later. So we had a taste of what, what we could do and uh, uh, with these big conventions, and as you know, we've had one every five years since, in St. Louis, and then in Long Beach, California, and in Toronto, and finally, five years ago in Miami Beach. And Bill, of course, was the centerpiece of all of those. And he got to the Miami one all right, but was stricken, I guess, before he got there and was rushed off to the intensive care section of a local hospital under care of an AA doctor who had been treating him. And all of his conference appointments were canceled. And the conference tried to stumble on without him. But then on Sunday morning, the equivalent in Miami of this meeting, uh, the doctors thought, and Bill God knows wanted to do it, the doctors thought it might be all right for him to make a brief appearance. So they drove his car into the auditorium and lifted him in a wheelchair with a forklift up onto the platform from the back and they had him dressed in the orange jacket that was the symbol of that uh, that particular conference and wheeled him up to the lectern with the oxygen tube still in his nose and an attendant walking behind him crouching behind him holding the oxygen tank and they wheeled him up front and he stood up 
And ladies and gentlemen, he was ten feet tall. And I was down front that day, and I had the presence of mind to turn my back to the platform and look out at the faces. And the awe and the admiration and the love that I saw in those faces is an image that I will carry the rest of my life. It was really a great, great moment in AA history. So if to some of us old-timers there seems to be something missing in this conference, there is, and his name is Bill. Uh, but Bill, of course, would be the first one to say, carry on. And of course, we have carried on. Uh, I'm going to try to do something here that, that, that I think may mark this occasion for all of us. Uh, I think it's the 95th Psalm that says, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. It was Bill himself who named this man as the rock upon which Alcoholics Anonymous stands. And all of us who have the privilege to know both these men know that this fellow over here was the cutting edge of AA, the sword in the stone, so to speak. And together, they constituted our rock of salvation. So let me resort back to the newsreel business here for a minute. Lois, in the letter in the front part of the Alan excellent program, says that Bill is still with us, and certainly he is. And I choose to believe that he can look down and see this picture here right now. So let me... Again, be a newsreel editor, and let's put a soundtrack to that picture. We're going to make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. I'm going to ask each of you, on the count of three in a minute, to shout your first name just as loud as you can and with as much love as you can put into it, so that we'll put a soundtrack and send that up with this picture. Uh... Ready? One, two, three. Thank you. I'm sure Bill thanks you. I'm sure Dr. Bob thanks you. And I'm sure my sponsor, Dan, thanks you too because he's up there also. Uh, Now we come to the part of this program that uh, I'm looking forward to. Your first speaker tonight, I think perhaps other than Bill and Dr. Bob and Lois, his may be the best known name in all of AA. I've known about Chuck for years, heard his tapes, know a great deal about him, and everybody insists that I have known him for years. They say, sure, you know Chuck Tim. I said, no. Oh, yes, you were on the same program back there and so on. So I say, no. 
and there were times I almost had to fight about it. Uh, I don't know why our paths haven't crossed, but they haven't. We met coming up those steps here just a few minutes ago, uh, but that doesn't matter. AA collapses things like that very quickly and very easily. And now I'd like to introduce my very old and dear friend, Chuck. Thank you, I am Chuck C., and I'm an alcoholic. I, uh, I sort of asked God that maybe I won't last this up. <laughs> I was introduced to old buttermilk. Some... I was introduced by old Buttermilk sometime back at a conference, and uh, he says this has been a pretty good do up until now if old Goober here don't louse it up. <laughs> so I hope I don't louse it up. Thirty minutes doesn't even give me time to tell you how much I love you. I do well to say good morning in 30 minutes. <laughs> but I do love you very, very much. And my theme this morning, if I have one, is gratitude. And it starts with the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous is 40 years old. Because if Alcoholics Anonymous weren't 40 years old, I wouldn't be almost 30 years old, and if I wasn't old, I am most grateful to the committee for allowing me to be here with you and tell you that I love you. Thirdly, They told me to stay away from this thing. It might bite. But I sort of sympathize with you. I haven't heard anything in this auditorium yet. <laughs> That's the only gripe I have. Everything else about this thing has been perfect. But I couldn't hear anything. It don't make much difference whether you hear me or not, <laughs> because you've already had a full cup. <clears throat> Last Sunday, just a week ago now, an AA and Al-Anon friend of Mr. C and myself, threw a bit of a bash for us 
to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. <clears throat> the crowd that came was bigger than this. <laughs> They wouldn't have counted up quite so high, but they'd have filled this auditorium. And amongst them were people from far away. We got telephone calls and telegrams from practically all over the world. And one of our sons flew 30 hours. He came from England and went right back to England just to spend five hours with us last Sunday. Now, 30 years ago, the woman that has been married to me for 50 years was divorcing me. Our two sons wouldn't come home when I was around if they could help it. And just eight short years ago, our youngest son wouldn't have come if he'd have been in town. So these are a few things that I'm grateful for. Now, my fight in this deal happened from ten years before I got here until I came. I started attempting to work out my own problem ten years before I came to the program. And in the next ten years, I killed myself. And only then could I come. So I suspect that the reason I have been so slap-happy in this program for almost 30 years is because I can take absolutely no credit for anything that's happened. I can't even take credit for coming because as long as I had the power of choice, my choice was never to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I never came until I'd lost everything, including the power of choice. So, I think that's the reason it's been so such a joyous journey for me. You know, we have a saying amongst us that you can't be grateful and unhappy at the same time. And I believe that to be true. I also believe that you can't be grateful for something you think you've done yourself. If you think you have done it, you want the credit for it. But if you know you didn't, you can be grateful. Now, I think there's an easy way and a hard way to do this thing. I think the hard way is to try to do it yourself. And the easy way is to know that you can't.
So everything that's happened to me in this program has been a plus. And the pluses have been many. And I'm going to share a couple of them with you. And then... Used to dream. My drinking life was 25 years. So the next 25 years was schooling, preparation. And now I have had something like 30 years in the fruition of the dream. Now who is there that can say that that schooling period wasn't just as necessary in my life as having the dream in the first place? And who is there to say that that was bad? Not me. Because out of the worst possible life came the best. And I think that if there was any way that I could be improved by rationalization, this might be thought to be a rationalization of a misspent youth. But there's nothing to be gained. Because I'm not going any place. I have nothing to prove and nothing to win. And I share this with you simply for this purpose. That those of you who maybe have not yet realized the glory of being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and being sober, which means being able to live comfortably, peacefully, and joyously with ourselves. That may be looking at that, we can see the grandeur of this thing itself. Alcoholics Anonymous is bigger than all outdoors. When I got here, I think 95% of it thought if we hadn't had a drink today, we were sober. I think today 95% of us know that our sobriety is built on not having a drink today. Physical sobriety is the foundation. But sobriety is fourfold. It is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And it adds up to being able to live comfortably, peacefully, and joyously with ourselves. And when we can live comfortably, peacefully, and joyously with us, we have no trouble at all living with the world around us. I think this is the most consumingly fascinating experience in living that anybody could ever be exposed to. Because, you see, alcoholism is a living problem, and you and I must have a living answer. Now, I know nothing about any other approach to the disease of alcoholism except Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know anything about them.
Because when I came, there weren't many approaches to the disease of alcoholism. And I got here, and I haven't had a drink or a tranquilizing drug or a funny cigarette since, so I haven't needed any other approach. <laughs> And everything I ever dreamed of having, and everything I beat my brains out to get for the first 30 years of my life and business, has come into my life in the last 29 years and six months. And it all came from the same place, because my entire life for 29 years and six months. Every department of my life has been a 12-step call. My business, my home, my play, my AA, and my church. Every bit of it has been a 12-step call. I started in 29 years and six months ago trying to rub out a record. And you can't rub out a record thinking, I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, I ya 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 ya. If you're going to rub out a record, you got to do something for somebody without a price tag on it. And I have been doing that for 29 years and six months. Hey, <laughs> hey story that is one of the best AA stories I've ever heard. <laughs> it's the story of the prodigal son. And I take a few uh, liberties with it. And those of you who are pious just say it due to my ignorance. But this is my story. And it's your story. It explains more to me about me and my relationship to you and to God than anything I ever ran into. So, whilst it beat it a few years, the guy that told it, I think, knew that we were going to come along and we would have it anyway. So he told it to us. It goes something like this. A certain wealthy man had two sons. And the youngest one of them came to his dad. And he says, Dad, I've gotten me some big ideas. I've got a lot of ambition. I'm going out to California. And I'm going to cut me a big swath out there. Give me my inheritance. Now his dad didn't say, wait a minute, son. We have everything right here. We're wealthy. The whole business we've got right here. Now don't leave. Don't go out there by yourself. 
You're liable to get in trouble. You just might run into a blonde with a bottle of muscadoodle and get into a lot of trouble. Stay home. He didn't say that. He didn't argue with the kid at all. He gave him his inheritance. And the kid left. He went into a far country. And he wasted his substance on riotous living. Now, maybe you didn't do that, but it sounds suspiciously like me. <laughs> and after he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. Now, this is serious as it is, it just tickles me to death. If there's ever anybody that should be acquainted with famine, <laughs> it's this outfit right here. I don't even believe they make famines like that no more. There was a mighty famine in the land and the kid came to want. So what did he do? He did just like you did and he did just like I did. He went to a man in that country. He didn't go home. He went to a man in that country. What did you do? You went to a man in that country. You went to the doctor, to the priest, to the preacher, to the psychiatrist. Every place. But to come back home. And the man put him to work. And this is most interesting too. He put him to tend in the pigs. Now the thing that makes this so interesting, this was a Jew boy telling this story and Jews don't like pigs. There ain't anything in the world that would be worse for a Jew than tending pigs. And what he's trying to tell us is, that the boy was down. We have a word for it in the A. It's a low bottom. <laughs> and here he was in the pig pen, tending the pigs. And when he was in there tending the pigs, he got hungry. And he fain would eat the husks that the pigs did eat. And no man gave unto him. How well I know that pig pen. He was beyond human help. No man gave unto him. Beyond human help. And we have a little thing that sort of fits that. Probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. For myself, I changed that because I had been to the best of human power and I have nothing against them. But my little say saying is no human power could ever leave my alcoholism. <clears throat> now at the depths of his depression, he took a look at himself. 
he came to himself. And he said to himself, I'm a bad boy. I've done everything the wrong way. Every time I should have turned right, I turned left. And I'm a mess. I don't think you ever did that either, did you? <laughs> that last ten years, I did it ten thousand times. Because I was a periodic for the last ten years, because I was going to beat this rat. And between every two drunks, I beat myself to death. Just like this. I'm a, uh, I'm a bad man. I've done everything the wrong way. So while he was condemning himself, he remembered that in his father's house was plenty and to spare. But he said to himself, I can't go back and say, look, Dad, I'm your son. Do you, do you remember me? I'm your boy. How about taking me back? He says, I can't do that. And I remember me when I got to the third step. I had absolutely no objection to turning my will and my life over to anything. To a jackass if I had gotten rid of me. But I couldn't conceive of giving this mess to God. I didn't think he liked me any better than I did, and I hated my guts. And that's just what this thing says to me. He says, I can't go home and say, look, I'm your son. Take me back. And I'll start over. Couldn't do it. But he remembered something else. He says, the servants back there have more than I do. I'll go back and ask him to take me on as a hired servant. And he made a decision. He says, I will arise and go to my father. We have a decision like that too, you know. I will arise and go to my father. I came to in January 1946 after a four weeks blackout. With the clearest head I've ever known in my life. And I had nothing in this body of mine but booze. And I saw me as I was. And I said that morning, if I ever live to get out of this bed, I'll find AA. And I've never had to take a drink or a pill since. Because the same thing happened to me that happened to this chap. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And he got up and started home. 
And the father saw him a long ways off, and he came to meet him. And the father saw me a long ways off, and he came to meet me through people like you, drunks who were not drunk, who took me on their laps and rocked me to sleep. The father saw him a long ways off and he came to meet him. And the kids started trying to tell him what a bad boy he'd been. And again the father didn't hear him. He didn't say, yes, I know all about you. I've kept books on you. I know what you've done. You're certainly a stinker. Now get the grubbing hole and go back here on the back 40 and get to work on those sassafras bushes and persimmon sprouts. Maybe in 25 years, if you've done a good job, I'll invite you in for lunch. He didn't say that. Again, he didn't even hear it. He fell on his neck and kissed him. And he put a ring on his finger, the symbol of eternal life. And he calls to the servants. And he says, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. He says, the boy was dead, and he's now alive. He was lost, and he's come back home. Let's have a party. We have a little one like that, too. It says that God could and would, if sought. God bless you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chuck. You sound in person like you do on tape. <laughs> that was great. Uh, he took some liberties with the, with the scripture, and, and we do in my group down in Lake Worth, too. Thanks to a, a gal, a very pretty gal, sitting out there somewhere, Pat, uh, we've been given some, uh, some uh, biblical misquotes, shall we say. And when we get a new person in our group in Lake Worth, uh, we give him the text. And the text is this, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make ye matters in hell. <laughs> and in case you ever get in the <laughs> same kind of spot that uh, Chuck was in at Folsom and have only a few minutes to, to, uh, to say a lot we also have a guy in our group down there who, uh, who has the most concise, concise qualification for membership in alcoholism I have ever heard Russ says when I was nine years old my grandmother gave me a drink of homemade, homemade elderberry wine and I went right home and asked mother if I could go live with grandma uh, 30 years later, I joined AA. Uh, your next figure, unlike my acquaintance with Chuck, I've known almost since the day I arrived in AA. 
and he was off fighting a war when I when I arrived, so it took a little while for him to get back. But I think he was on leave within a couple of weeks of when I showed up in, in New York. Uh, he showed up in his uh, naval officer uniform, looking very grand and very noble. Uh, but I felt superior to him because the one thing I managed in my life that was truly well managed was that I was born a little bit too young for World War One and a little bit too old for World War Two. That's the only thing I ever did right in my life. Uh, but Yev was 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 in the Navy and uh, he was also recruiting for AA in the service. He started AA groups in such uh, seaports as Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, and he... Louder? Can you hear now? I can't figure this out. Can you hear now? How's that? Thank you. Uh, as I was explaining to Whit this morning, anything beyond the wheel confuses me. Uh, but I've known you for, for all the time I've been in AA. And since, incidentally, we're identifying time here, it dawned on me that there are three times as many people in this room as there was in AA throughout the world when I came into AA. Isn't that amazing? But, yeah, uh, we got to know each other very well after he got out of the service, and uh, he's devoted his whole life to alcoholism in, in many ways. And there was one time uh, he was scheduled to speak at a banquet over in New Jersey, and something happened the end of family situations. He couldn't do it. And again, like Bill, he asked me, he called me and said, could I substitute for him? And I said, sure. And he said, I owe you one. And the, uh, the, the church where, where uh, my group out in Long Island met was a, uh, an Episcopalian church. And uh, Canon Downs, who was the, the pastor there, knew all about AA and everything. And he called me up and he said, I would like to have somebody from AA make a typical AA talk from my pulpit. I would like my congregation to, uh, to, uh, to know about AA and what goes on back in the parish house here a couple of nights a week. So he said, and the boys tell me that you're, you're the guy who should do it. And I said, oh, no, but I got a friend. I got a fellow I can fix you up all right. I thought I was getting you into a lot of trouble. At that time, I didn't know his qualifications. I just knew him as a drunk and an ex-naval officer. So I brought a little gang of hecklers, and we showed up on Sunday morning to kind of give him the business. And the, the ceremony started, and Yev came down the aisle in all the robes and everything else, helped to put on the service, all the rest of it, with, with Canon Downs. And what I didn't know, that at that time, he was a lay preacher in, 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 in the church. And, and uh, so the laugh was on me, as it usually is when I try to cook up something like that. Uh, but he's a dear friend, and I'm sure if you don't know him, he'll be your dear friend in another few minutes. He's now, has been for a long time, an ordained minister. His name is Yevelyn, and he's sometimes known as Yev the Rev. Here he is.
Can you hear me? Thank you. Thank you, Al. My name is Yet, and I'm a very grateful alcoholic. Hi. I've had the best of both worlds, before and after, and particularly since AA. I've had some very exciting times in my life, but I don't know any three days in my life that I will remember to the end like the last three days. I've been walking four feet off the floor since I got off the plane. God bless you. It's very dangerous to be speaking at the end of a conference where you've had about 85 meetings because everything I know I've stolen from every other AA I know and all the jokes I know I've stolen from AA so you probably heard the story I'm going to tell you to identify the situation I was in when I found uh, a year or so before I found this wonderful adventure of AA. It's a story of three girls, very attractive international girls who were on an international quiz show. One was French, one was American, and the other was British. And the British girl was very shy and embarrassed and wished she hadn't ever been on the thing in the first place. And they were asking these girls questions. And they finally came to one which said, what would you do if you were on a lonely desert isle with two very husky, handsome, brawny young men? And the British girl said, I would be so embarrassed and so frightened, I would kill myself. The American girl thought this was sort of silly. She was more practical, and she said, well, I'd look the two of them over and pick the huskier one. I'd marry him. While all this was going on, the French girl was sitting there looking at them rather quizzically, and when it came her turn, she said, I heard the question, what's the problem? And it seems about the time I was beginning to develop my progression, to its peak, everybody else had a problem. My wife had a problem. She was calling the family lawyer and calling all the relatives. My boss had a problem. He wondered where the hell I was. My doctor had a problem because I was taking a lot of his time to kind of straighten out my nervous tension. And they were all calling all around and trying to do things, and somebody knew somebody in AA, and they called them up, and they told them a strange thing. Well, we can't help him. He seems to be qualifying for us, but until he shows some interest, we can't do much. That kind of made them a little disappointed. Well, you know, we have a very special round-the-clock salesman for this organization. He's out there working right now, Sunday morning, His name is John Barleycorn, and he was working on me during this time, and about a year later, I found you. Thank God. Now, as I say, I've had the best of both worlds. I had a wonderful life as a young man. I'm different in two respects, I think, from most people who speak at AA in smaller meetings, because... The average, I think, started drinking around junior high school or maybe in the third grade, I don't know which. I didn't take a drink till I was 25 years old. And I didn't drink because I had any worries, problems, or felt that I was inadequate about anything. In fact, one of the old-timers that greeted me when I came in, he said, Yev, you got the humility of a gorilla. I thought I was hot stuff. I inherited quite a bit of money in a depression period when 
it was nice to have a dollar that bought a few things. And this gave me uh, an attitude of wanting everything to be done my way. And so I went merrily on my way with two ambitions. One was to get all the gratification and pleasure I could out of life. And second, to make a career for myself that would be by all the material standards that we have in this good country to be a, quote, success, unquote. And I worked hard at this, and by virtue of the fact that I had a little independence, I was able to build up a department in the business I was working for, so that at the age of 29, I had my picture in the financial sections of the New York Times as a junior associate in the business. And of course, having started drinking, I very rapidly got into the American culture of drinking, and I bought my clients and entertained them, bought them liquor. People who uh, got business from me bought me liquor. Uh, and the weekends at the club, we always drank. We drank when anyone came home. We drank if we were tired. We drank if we closed the deal. And I was drinking, drinking, drinking. And for me, this progression was very, very rapid. I never took a drink at the wrong, improper time of day, even to the end. I always would meet someone at a proper time after business or whatever and have a drink. I've never been hospitalized, never lost a home, never lost a job, never been picked up for drinking, driving, never had any of the grim things, and perhaps my message is of more value to those people who have not gone through the gamut of distress and lost so much. I was a prodigal son because I did go into the flesh pots and as I was described once uh, in my drinking as a habitué of the flush line sewers of Manhattan. I did my drinking in the hot spots. I wanted to go where the action was and primarily my values were those of a synthetic nature on a completely material plane. Most of you drank, or at least have probably spilled more than I drank in quantity, because I was a periodic drinker right to the end. And to the end, with the peculiar set of values I had, I still thought I was having fun, I was really living. But in that last year, as I say, John Barleycorn did the trick, and fortunately for me, Everyone around me did the right thing. I have come to believe it's not so important to describe the silly escapades and the foolish things I did, such as buying a new suit on a mid-June morning, going out into the street in front of the store, seeing how beautiful I looked in my new finery, feeling it was useless to waste it on the office. I had a couple of martinis, went to the ball game. In New York, the Philadelphia team was playing, I met a man in the bleachers who had a couple of whiskey pints on his hip and I was drinking beer by then and we shared boilermakers and he came up with a very natural and logical suggestion. The next day we follow the teams to Philadelphia and watch the game over there. I got some money and went to Philadelphia. Four days later I found my way back to New York. I never had blackouts but I don't know. I got home and my gorgeous suit was not what it used to be. When I took that drink 
At lunch, following the purchase of a new suit, if anyone had told me that morning when I went to work, one, that I would drink, I would have laughed. Two, if they'd said, if you take a drink you have at lunch, you won't go to work, I would have laughed. If they'd said, if you go to the ball game, you won't go home, I would have laughed. And if they suggested I would go on for four or five days away from everyone I normally knew, I would have been very angry. Because I was suffering from the ignorance that makes this disease progress so terribly. I absolutely knew nothing about what had happened to me in a few short years, where from taking a drink and staying in town, playing around for one night, I disappeared from all normal pursuits and people for a week, seven, eight days before I found myself back to normal surroundings. I think, however, the important thing is the kind of person I was mixing alcohol with. I had this materialistic goal, which was bred in me, I guess, to be a success. I was spoiled rotten, so gratification was the goal of my life. I had no understanding whatsoever of human personalities and sensitivities. If my neighbor walked to the train with me and suggested some of the problems he had or his successes, I would pretend to be polite, but I would be waiting for him to shut up so I could tell him my problems or my successes. I sought people who were the charming phonies that could solve the problems of the world in saloons, who should manage the World Series, what we should do with the international situation. But my family was wondering whether the bills would be paid. And so I was going along merrily with this peculiar type of values, and alcohol struck. And fortunately because in a couple of years it telescoped and progressed so rapidly, it became very apparent to me that something was happening. And I used to sit drinking coffee on the way going back to see if I still had a job and wonder if I shouldn't be put away when I thought of the waste, the harm, the hurt, and the people and the places I'd been because I was a psychopathic person, I think, when I was with alcohol. And then fortunately, everyone around me did the right thing. There was no training, no guidance, no employee alcoholism programs, no family counseling, but they did the right thing. They confronted me with the consequences of my drinking and my behavior. My wife told me she could no longer go along with this. She said, I love you. I don't know why I still love you. There's nothing much about you to love, but I do. My boss told me that although I thought I was indispensable, the firm had started in 1867. They'd been there a long time before I came, and they felt they could go on without me. My family doctor who provided my home uh, family remedy for detoxification said he wouldn't come anymore. And my banker told me, please don't come in any longer at nine in the morning, unshaven and unkempt, with a taxi driver on one side and a nightclub operator on the other, and expect us to bail you out of your financial troubles. We've had it with you. And my boss, after telling me that he meant this, and I could see now that I was not that indispensable person, my boss took me aside and he said, I know someone that I think could be of great help to you. He belongs to a small organization called Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what they do, but I think you mean it when you promise again and again not to do these things.
I suggest we meet for lunch. But when the boss proposes, the employee disposes. I met my sponsor, and a week later I was in AA with a gun in my ribs. I didn't come willingly, and I don't think any of us ever did. I don't think we come to AA throwing our hat in the air. We come to take our medicine. Maybe it's the police captain. Maybe it's the boss. Maybe it's a DWI judge. But we don't come joyously. And so, clutching my wife's hand, I walked into a little smoke-filled room. And there in one night, I learned from graduates of Bellevue Psychiatric Ward, magna cum laude, from Creedmoor Psychiatric State Hospital, plain cum laude, and others, most of them much older than I, most of them who had lost nearly everything, more about myself in one night than I had learned from some of the people under duress whom I had sought help from, my pastor, who was something of a stranger to me because I was not a, a churchgoer at that time, from a psychiatrist to whom I went under the urging of my family. These dear souls knew nothing about alcoholism, and we can't blame them. But there from these graduates of the state hospitals in the Skid Row, in one night, they opened my eyes. Because every time I took a drink periodically, at a proper time, I would say, this time it will be different. I should have had cards printed, I said it so often. I really thought it would be different. I thought it was because my wife was unfair to me. My boss was unreasonable. I was tired. I had problems. That's why I drank that way. And boy, did you torpedo that at that first meeting. Every one of the speakers said, one drink is too many for an alcoholic and 30 is not enough because we have developed an allergy of the body, a dysfunction which makes it impossible and has taken away all choice as to what will happen when we drink. And it doesn't matter how long we stay sober between drinks because I used to say I can take it or leave it alone. I haven't had a drink for three months. And right then and there I knew I never again could say this time it will be different. And they told me this was coupled with an obsession of the mind that made people go on trying again and again to recapture those dear gone days of years ago when they might drink without causing any problems. And they told me also that there was hope. They said, we don't care how many problems you got, new people. When you come in here, we can top you. There's always somebody that can make you feel it could have been worse. And that reminded me of the story of the poker club that met every Thursday night. And they played cards, and they had one fellow who was always saying, it could have been worse. It didn't matter how many problems the other fellows had. He kept saying this. They got very tired of it. But one night, one of the men went home after the game, and he found his wife in bed with another man, and he shot them both, killed them, and committed suicide. The next Thursday, they came back to the game, and they said, oh boy, we got old Charlie now. He can't say that this time. So they said, did you hear about Bill and what happened? Yes, he said, but it could have been worse. How could it have been worse? Three people have been killed. Well, he said it could have been worse because it could have been the Thursday before and it would have been me. So you see, no matter how bad it sounds, it could have been worse. I was delighted to find there were no musts. 
It was implicit that you wanted help, but they said, take this program as you can understand it. There are no musts here, and I was so pleased because everyone had said, why don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Why don't you do this? Can't you see this? And here they said, it's up to you. You will have to help diagnose your own case, whether you're an alcoholic or not. And so that gave me a feeling of hope. And when I learned I was a sick person, and as Chuck says, not a bad person, that gave me a feeling for the first time of a little bit of worth because my self-esteem was pretty low. And so they said, this is a program of action, participate. And boy, did I participate. I went from one end of the New York City area to Long Island, anywhere I could find a drunk. I went to psycho wards and talked to the drunks who talked about peraldehyde, and I thought they were talking about formaldehyde. I tried to sober up a 70-year-old lady who was so drunk she didn't know where she was, and her husband came home at 5 o'clock, and he never heard of the 12th step. And I had a call for help from the women. And I tried to change a chapter in the big book. I thought it could be improved. And while I was doing these things, my sponsors were looking at me a little askance and a little with a little humor in their mind, but they put a hand on each knee and he said, we told you to, to participate, but you're abusing the privilege. We commend to you that you look at those 12 steps hanging on the wall. Because sobriety is only the foundation, as Chuck said. Recovery from the disease of alcoholism is not sobriety. We can all stay sober. We've been sober in jail. We've been sober in the state hospital. We've been sober by pledges. And that's not recovery. Recovery is growth. It's change. So sit and listen. And they put a hand on each knee and I sat. And I listened and I tried to identify. And one of them said, with your impeccable character, we'll probably find it hard to discover any defects, but we think if you'll shut up and listen, maybe you'll find one or two. And it took me nearly a year to understand some of the meaning of the things. And they talked about resentments, and I had no resentments. Not much. I found after about 11 months I had a resentment in my office that was burning me up and probably got me drunk more often than once. They talked about grandiosity. And I was always spinning fantasies of things that were impossible to attain and getting drunk when, of course, I couldn't attain the impossible. And they talked about being honest with yourself. And Bill, dear, God bless him, used to sit with us and he'd say, we're masters of the delightful art of self-deception. We can rationalize any wrong deed in the most wonderful way. My wife says, I haven't lost that art yet, but I use it on simple things like figuring out a way not to take out the garbage. And so I learned how I could rationalize many of the things I did that were hurting people. And I learned and I heard such things as love. And love to me was kind of a funny thing. What was love? Uh, a sexy thing, maybe? And over the years, I've come to believe that love is the capacity to understand, to try to walk a bit in the other person's shoes and figure out that if you had his problems and his life situation, perhaps you could bear with him a little bit better. And as my sponsor said, when I was very intolerant of the way they were running the group, he said, listen, if you had had the problems that man had, you'd be even more intolerable than you are. 
And so as this went on, I began to see in other people coming after me, not so much in myself, that recovery and the AA program of the 12 steps, which I did not work in any semblance of order, I must say, was a process, a transforming process that was taking people coming into these groups in their whole life in disarray and putting the pieces together and learning to accept themselves and understand and get knowledge of themselves and realize that those moral inventory steps were not all the bad things we'd done in the past, but they were learning the danger points in our emotional makeup and temperament that got us under pressure so the valve had to blow. And that we learned we had assets and we couldn't always do the perfect job, but 90% was pretty good. I learned that I didn't have to be loved by everyone. I was going around nightclubs in New York having them play my song when I entered the room. Gardner had arrived. Who the hell knew and who the hell cared? But my ego filled the room. I was trying to buy affection and trying to make an impression. And I think the greatest thing that you lovable people have done for me is to release me from the need to try to impress people anymore. When my wife sent me off, she couldn't come on this trip. She said, now just be natural. Someone may like you. And I think when we can begin... I think when we can begin to laugh at ourselves a little, that compulsion is gone. Well, I didn't pay much attention to the people who spoke about God and the higher power. I skipped over those second and third steps. The eleventh step said pray, and I didn't know how to pray. But I began to notice after a year with all the changes of all the people coming in with so many problems, the new light in their eye, the way they were changing. And some of the speakers who spoke of turning their life over to God seemed to have a more serene and secure sobriety and recovery. So I talked to them. I listened to them. They gave me books to read. I went out to hear people speak uh, who were more close to the AA approach to the spiritual, such as Emmett Fox. I read books, and I talked with these people, and they taught me how to pray. And I found that when I turned my life and my will over to that man upstairs, to that person we may call God as we understand him, that strange things happen. And as Al said, when I was out in those foxholes, believe me, I needed him. And I had some experiences in the war, combined with the changes I'd seen in AA, that when I came back from the war, that old idea of being a fast buck hustler in New York, trying to get ahead of the other fellow a little faster, didn't seem to mean so much. Something had happened. This program had made something different. I think when I'm talking about these changes, I'm talking about the precious secret that each of us learns, and that precious secret is that the key to happiness is not to concentrate on yourself, but to lose yourself in others. And I guess this was happening, because strangely enough, I gave up a very lucrative position in the business to become a do-gooder. I was one of the first to wear two hats, and at the first convention that we had in Cleveland, I wouldn't have dared mention that, because we weren't so well accepted. But today, thank God, we know the need as individuals to help bring people to us sooner. And this is why to see so many young ones here means so much to me.
And I found this was not religion, this was not theology, doctrine, dogma. This was a personal relationship that each and every member had with God as he understood him. A personal line to his higher power. And that when the chips were down, he could turn the tough ones over and see that he had the strength to handle crisis. And so I'm going along, minding my own business, and I went back to church with my good wife. I became a lay reader in the Episcopal Church. Some of you Episcopalians may know what that means. I could read the epistle and the gospel if I stayed sober. And I was so nervous when I had to do it the first time, I nearly fainted. And our rector said, I want you to become a perpetual deacon. I can't afford a curate. I said, Father, I haven't time to go to the bathroom. How am I going to study for orders? He said, you go to a retreat the bishop's going to have next week and listen. Here I was with 70 young people out of seminary, and the bishop in his meditation looks right straight down those 70, right at me, put that beam on me, and he says, God never asked you to do anything without giving you the power to carry it out. And I said, my God, he's looking at me. So I took it on, and for five and a half years, I didn't, I didn't read a paper. I didn't read a book on a plane, a train, in the bathroom. I'm studying. And I made it, and I passed the priest's exams. But to do my alcoholism institutional work, the bishop said, your, your ministry's to the alcoholic, keep it up. Someday you may want to be a priest, and you've passed the exams. And so I'm a drunk who became a priest. I think there are some new people here, and I have to tell you, this is not standard procedure for the program of AA. But it shows you what can happen if this transforming process of Alcoholics Anonymous gets hold of you. And it gets hold of every one of us in a transforming way, so that in our own way we have our own ministry to the sick alcoholic. To sum up, I think this program is one of sharing growth and gratitude. That's what I've been trying to say in 25 minutes. We come into a loving fellowship of people who understand us. And we come to take our medicine and we don't know why we're here except we're scared and we know we're licked. And through that love and that sharing we begin to find ourselves and feel like a person again and then we look forward to our friends when we go to that meeting. And we come the day that we lose ourselves in that new drunk that new member who's in, will I say something that'll help him or her, not me? And we're beginning to lose ourselves in someone else. And in time we begin to learn our strengths and weaknesses and to accept ourselves, not the greatest that we were up on that peak of the drinking episode, not that worm we were at the end of the binge when we were nothing, but we have a balance. We can do our bit to the maximum of our potential. And in time, and sometimes it's very quick, it took me a long time, we come to see that all these recoveries of all kinds of people, all ages, shapes, sizes, all over the universe, are not the work of Mary and Bill and Jim and Sally and the people in our group, but there's a force behind it. And we come to see this is a power greater than ourselves, and we come to call him God. And so I'm grateful. Gratitude, sharing, growth. Wonderful men who were laughed at back in 1935 by a lot of people. 
This crackpot idea one drunk could help another when psychiatrists and medicine and science couldn't do it? Who were they to take a bunch of drunks off Skid Row? And the first hundred didn't have a shirt. But it worked. And I'm grateful that they stuck to this and we had AA in my lifetime, as Chuck said. And I'm grateful to those people who got me here and that it was here for me in the hour of need. And I'm grateful that I accepted it. I don't know why. Surrender is an intangible process. It's like falling in love. You can't pump it into anyone. But when that ego collapses and we surrender, and we accept this wonderful program, that's the paradoxical thing. To win the victory, we start with absolute, unconditional surrender. Thank you, and God. Now we come to the highlight of this whole convention. Uh, I'm not going to introduce just a wife, or just a founder of a phase of, or just a founder of a phase of our total overall program. Uh, I'm very conscious of some things now that I might not have been just a year or so ago. My own wife died 14 months ago, and I just left within the last three weeks uh, from a visit with our two children, two daughters. And we agreed, without any maudlin uh, uh, conferences or anything, that what we have as a family stems back to the basic strength of their mother and my wife. We all know that Bill held this thing together many, many times. And what the ultimate history of this fellowship will show, I know, is that Lois held Bill together just as often as he held us together. So I'm not going to try to elaborate. How can you elaborate on this lady? I now give you a very great lady, our very own very great lady. Here is Lois.
and Carl Slater came out along, and I know I'm a member of Alamo.
and the state legislature. And my speech, when I talk with you here tonight, is going to be very short. I just want to thank you all so very much. I read as a close a tiny little bit that Bill wrote. It's been copied in the book as Bill sees it. About the responsibility that we all now have now that we vanishing old timers are leaving that the responsibility to carry the message to you is to you AAAs and our lungs of today and tomorrow. We know that you will guard, support, and cherish this world legacy as the greatest collective responsibility that AA has or ever can have. Yours in trust and affection, Bill. And I'm sure that AA and our mom will walk together ahead, hand in hand, for as long as God chooses need them. I thank you. Thank you. 